0: A scripture lesson comes to us today from, as I mentioned earlier, Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> I'll be reading the first through third verse and then jumping down to verse 8. Read through verse 16. Faith is a reality of what we hope for. The proof of what we don't see. The elders in the past were approved because they showed faith. By faith... We understand that the universe has been created by a word from God, so that the visible came into existence from the invisible. Verse eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed, and he when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, he went without knowing where he was going. By faith he lived in the land he had been promised as a stranger. He lived in tents along with Isaac and Jacob, who were co-heirs of the same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received the ability to have a child, though she herself was barren and past the age for having children, because she believed that the one who promised was faithful. So descendants were born from one man, and he was as good as dead. They were as many as the number of the stars in the sky, and as countless as the grains of sand on the seashore, All of these people died in faith without receiving the promises but they saw the promises from a distance and welcomed them. They confessed that they were strangers and immigrants on earth. People who say this kind of thing make it clear that they are looking for a homeland if they had been thinking about the country that they had left they would have had the opportunity to return to it but at this point in time they are longing for a better country a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for God has prepared a city for them there ends the reading of these words. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Now I'm dating myself a bit, I suppose, to refer to a movie that is nearly 20 years old. But it made an impression on me, <clears throat> talking about the movie Castaway, Tom Hanks' character, Chuck, is stranded on a desert island in the Pacific Ocean, and to keep himself company, he finds, of all things, a volleyball that has washed up from the wreckage of the plane he had been flying in before becoming stranded. And Chuck, Tom Hanks, paints a face on the volleyball with his own blood and names him Wilson. And Wilson becomes Chuck's only companion while he remains on this island He talks to and sometimes even speaks for Wilson to keep himself company during the lonely months. And after four years on the island, Chuck builds a raft that he hopes will take him out to sea and maybe someone will find him and then he can be back reunited with his life. So he puts Wilson, this volleyball friend, on a wooden post on the raft because he cannot leave without his friend. And at one point as they're floating on the sea far from the island, Wilson that's the brand of the volleyball if you haven't caught on, falls from his post while Chuck is sleeping and when Chuck awakens he notices that Wilson is missing and he looks desperately out on the horizon to find Wilson. We see the depth of his attachment to Wilson if you watch the movie by the anguish that he feels when he tries to recover his wayward volleyball friend. Despite his efforts he cannot reach Wilson. Chuck cannot let go of his raft because He might not be able to return to it, so he watches helplessly as Wilson bobs off into the distance, gone forever. Now, the author of this book that we call Hebrews is worried that something similar is happening to some of the early Christian communities, in particular, at least to one whom he appears to be writing. The author fears that Christians, perhaps those living around Rome, Who are reading this very writing we call Hebrews might be drifting away from the faith and teachings of Jesus. So one of the main purposes, it seems, of this book we call Hebrews is to sort of swim out to rescue church members who are like Wilson, bobbing off into the distant horizons and drifting away from the center and safety of the Christian faith that they once held so dear. Maybe these Christians who were drifting were tired. Maybe they were tired in particular of being persecuted and by being persecuted, i mean far worse things than having Starbucks coffee cups not go in their favorite design flavor. Maybe they were disillusioned by some of the aspect of the faith. Maybe they were weary from holding on to the hope that one day God would bring peace and justice to all of creation. Early Christians heard that promise and they were expecting it all to happen in their lifetimes, and it was commonplace for early Christians to want to go back to their old faith tradition. Maybe they weren't living out their faith the right way. In any case, it seems here that the author is noticing they're in danger of drifting away from the faith. Now before we jump in and dissect Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's helpful to notice at least at a glance, what the rest of the book of Hebrews is setting out to accomplish. You may have heard this book referred to as the letter to the Hebrews. It actually doesn't really have a lot of the same qualities as some of the other letters uh, in the Second Testament have. But you'll notice here that it's more really of a lengthy sermon. It doesn't start off like a letter, but whatever it is intended to be, the author wastes absolutely no time getting right into some major points and concerns. And so without any small talk, the book of Hebrews launches into a deep reflection on who Jesus really was. And within the first three verses, the author ties Jesus to the prophets. And then there's a whole cascade of ideas, building the authority of Jesus, and if you will, the resume of Jesus, so that his past experiences qualify Jesus as one whose life and teachings and ministry should provide guidance and clarity for how Christian communities should live out their faith. And by the time we arrive in chapter 11, where we read from today, the author of Hebrews recounts the history of some of the heroes and sheroes of the faith from the First Testament. And chapter 11 condenses these stories of the faith into a highlight reel of sorts. The author writes out of a deep-seated belief that these stories from the past should feed the faith of those who are hearing them retold. And so it's safe to say they should feed our faith today and provide guidance and clarity for us today as what is good, faithful behavior. The church was getting to the point in their lives together where they might not recall these older stories anymore. I wonder how well we know these stories ourselves. Hebrews, this writing, is encouraging its readership to hear them and wrestle with them again. So the author introduces these faith stories from years gone by with a single sentence that has chiseled its way onto artwork and monuments, worked its way into pep talks, and infiltrated greeting cards and t-shirts even. Hear these words. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction or evidence of things not seen. If you pay careful attention, each part of that larger-than-life sentence reinforces the other parts of what is being said in the rest of our text. But let's start with these words, things hoped for. Now we certainly hope a lot of things, don't we? When we're thinking about our faith journey, we certainly hope that we can receive forgiveness when we need it. We certainly hope that God will heal creation of present and past pain. We certainly hope that the suffering that we experience in this life can somehow be useful and be redeemed in some kind of way, because it sure hurts a lot. These things still remain to be seen, and these things still need to be fulfilled, but faith... I guess, by this definition, and there are others. But faith, according to the writer of Hebrews, is persistent trust and the underlying belief that these things will come to be in time, even though we may not ever see them up close. Faith, then, according to Hebrews here, is what keeps us going when hope is not yet realized. To put it another way, the author of Hebrews might say, Faith is the prerequisite of hope. And we have this hope because in the past we have witnessed some remarkable, wonderful things that have come forth from very dire situations. Glancing back to the First Testament, the author of Hebrews goes all the way back to the creation stories of our faith as we continue to read the text again. And he said, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by a word from God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not seen. So there are lots of ways to be faithful. And there are lots of ways to be a faithful Christian and to understand how all of this came to be that we call creation. You know, some Christians, they used to fear that once Christian people began to learn about science and things like Darwin's theory of evolution, that this would take the mystery right out of the faith. But you know, for me personally, it's had the opposite effect. The more I begin to learn about science and creation and evolution, the more in awe I become of how things have been given life and given shape. And it's even more beautiful to me because I can engage my head as well as my heart and understanding how all of this came to be. And and looking at creation can actually give us new insights into mystery and beauty. So our faith is rejuvenated, the writer says, here when we behold the beauty of creation. A mountain, the oceans, the stars at night, the tiniest of newborn baby birds as they open their mouths to be fed. Our faith from looking at creation can be filled with a sense of awe and wonder. Then, after briefly mentioning Abel and Noah, the writer of Hebrews lifts up the example of Abraham and then Sarah. Abraham was a great patriarch because he was willing to leave what was familiar and comfortable and set out for a new place which, by the way, was completely unknown and out of sight. And his story begins, if you want to look at it later, in Genesis chapter 12, where God tells him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Abraham sets out on an absolutely uncertain future. He went in obedience, he went in trust, in a sense of adventure, I'm sure, accompanied all of these things. And the Abraham story raises some really important questions for us, I think. Can our faith ever grow if we are always too comfortable? Is there such a thing as being too comfortable? Do we not have to take some risks in order to truly find our faith? Don't we have to venture out into the unknown at some point if our faith is ever to stretch? Does faith grow in the soil of comfort? Or are challenges and anxieties also needed mixed into that soil, almost like fertilizer, to ensure our faith? We do not have to move physically to grow our faith, but if we find ourselves too comfortable in our current settings, our own thoughts, our own attitudes, in the way that we are either living or not living out our faith or our values, I wonder will our faith ever really grow into what it could possibly? Become. Now, normally, we idolize our sheroes and our heroes to the point where they can do no wrong. But I find this account in Hebrews refreshingly honest because the author of Hebrews wants us to understand something about these heroes and sheroes that is refreshingly human. Despite their courage and their willingness to step out in faith, they did not fully experience the fulfillment of their own hopes and expectations. The writer says they only saw them and greeted them from a distance. Did you notice that? Abraham endured trouble after trouble, threat after threat, test after test. Just one example, when Abraham arrived at precisely the place he had heard God tell him to go in Genesis 12:10, when he got there, you know what he encountered? famine. So when you're on a grand adventure and you show up to where you think the finish line is, it would be very easy to quit and just say, if you were Abraham, I failed. But the author of Hebrews wants those reading to not miss this point, because whenever we are tempted to drift or to call it quits, We must remember that even the most courageous and spiritual leaders also experience hardship, even doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. None of us are exempt from doubt. None of us are exempt from turmoil, from hunger, from moments where fear gets the best of us and we really don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. Now I meet many, many people inside and outside the church today, who share with me that they may no longer believe some of the elements of the faith. Now, they don't just sit down one day, what I've learned, and decide, you know, I don't think I'll believe in God anymore, or, you know, I can't really hold to the faith anymore. It's not necessarily a conscious decision, and it doesn't just come on like a light bulb or like a switch is flipped. It doesn't seem to work like that. They don't consciously sit down and decide that the church has no mission instantaneously and is useless. It's much more gradual, normally, what I've noticed. They tend to drift away slowly. Often it takes place when youth leave high school after years of participating in church, and they go to college, and they're busier than they've ever been, and they have less, uh, you know... People looking over their shoulders, and so they quit participating in the life of church because, you know, their parents aren't close by to make them, and they don't really know what they're doing all of the time and other components of their lives become more interesting and compelling and suddenly they have more space and they realize that some of their experiences with church really weren't that great anyway. In fact, much of what they had been taught really was folklore and fairy tales when they start to engage their minds and they start to grow in their knowledge and their ability to think critically. Or sometimes even adults experience a shift. It could be when a change in ministers happens. They see how people treat one another. Or maybe they blame one another that someone treated the minister poorly who used to be there. Or maybe they blame each other that when a new minister is coming in, the other ones aren't as excited as they should be. My point is, there are lots of underlying reasons, too many to list, why we can become disillusioned with the church and with the faith. Some are natural, and some are exceptions to the natural. And just underneath the surface of many of these feelings, we may feel like drifting because the church just seems to fall into a whole hum routine. You might even say a rut. And nothing important seems to be happening through the church. So why should we give a care? Why be a part of the Christian community? We call the church, and, and I think this is where the writer of Hebrews comes in. Maybe what the writer of Hebrews was calling us to do is to truly take note of how important... Truly amazing things happen, not in the aha moments, but in the ordinary, slow-moving, mundane life of the church. So if we find ourselves drifting in our faith, and it's just a matter of time for any one of us, either we've been there or we are there or we will be there again. If we find ourselves drifting, how exactly do we come back home? Whether or not we ever return to the same place we used to call home, now that's a sermon for another day. But let me say that sometimes our home base needs to shift of what we thought faith was or church was. And sometimes we've built our faith on the wrong stuff sometimes we we may need to experience doubts and we may need to ask hard questions of our faith and of our church and if our faith or if our church cannot really be doubted or questioned why would we want to return to that same kind of faith or that same kind of church as it was exactly before but a healthy faith a vibrant faith and a vibrant church community should be connected both to the head and to the heart. Faith is more than simply checking the yes box for a set of doctrines that you either believe or don't believe. And yet Hebrews suggests that that actually what we can believe can really feed our hearts. What do we really believe about Jesus? What do we really believe about ourselves? And what ways do we understand that Jesus was a reflection of the glory of God and at the same time a human being that succeeded and failed in some of the ways that we succeed and fail? If even Jesus experienced heartbreak and suffering and death, does it not follow that we might as well? From Abraham, we learn that faith grows best when planted in the soil of risk and uncertainty. But we also learn that we may not see results right away. In spite of uncertainty, sometimes faith means just doing the next right thing that is right under our noses. Sometimes faith means waiting for the right thing to appear. Sometimes faith means acting courageously. Sometimes it means hoping. Sometimes it means throwing caution to the wind and just jumping in with both feet, even when we're uncertain. When we're unsure about our next step in our lives or in our faith or in our church community, sometimes the faith comes in the wrestling and the restlessness. It's in the failing even. It's in the floundering that we will find something that surprises us even though we ourselves have felt fearful and uncertain, here's the thing. To someone else who's watching, we just might be a hero or a hero. Because, no, not because we did everything perfectly, but because we didn't quit. We didn't always feel 100%. We tell ourselves, I certainly never acted at 100% you know, of a faithfulness quotient. But we didn't quit. We didn't walk away. And to someone else, we've actually become a mentor just by our struggling. And faith, my friends, even the kind of faith that is hanging on, if only by a thread, faith will lead us home. Amen.